Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to today's show. Very, very special guest on our show today. Been a friend of ours for a long time, friend of our culture and our humanity in this world, and uh, it's the great Mitch Albom. And Mitch has been a best-selling author for a long time, seven number one bestsellers. Tuesdays with Maury was uh, four years atop the New York Times bestseller list, over 40 million copies of his book sold. There is a lot of folks like myself. I've written a New York Times bestseller, but I am not a writer. This is one of the great writers of our time and one of the great thinkers of our time. And we are very, very excited today because Mitch, as the time you're listening to this, is releasing his first time in over a decade, a nonfiction book. And it's very, very powerful, very, very poignant. Mitch sent me a copy of his book and said, Brian, this is the most important book I've ever written, perhaps ever will write. Mitch, I want to welcome you to today's show. Thanks for taking time. I'm real excited to get into the nuts and bolts on uh, Finding Chica. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate being able to spread the message of this very, very unique story. Well, it's great to have you, bud. And I, I want to start out here today with an email I received April seventh, 2017. And it was an open letter from Mitch. I'm going to read it to everybody, and it'll kind of set the tone for where we're going to go with this call, how powerful this is. And no matter where you are in your life today, I think there's a message of hope and encouragement in here for you. So I'm going to read this letter that Mitch wrote, and it'll really kind of let you know where Finding Chica goes. It's, uh, it is with a broken heart that I share that our beloved Chica went home to heaven today at 1.43 in the afternoon. She was seven. She went breathing slower and slower until she drifted off like the magical child she was. No morphine, no drama, just love. She was diagnosed with a DIPG brain tumor in May of 2015 in Haiti and lived 23 months battling it every step of the way. Doctors expected a five-month survival. Chica stunned them all. Even yesterday, when she was down to one breath a minute, she suddenly rallied and came back to stable form, 33 breaths a minute, leaving the experts shaking their heads and giving us one more blessed day with her. She left this earth while snuggled in her favorite position between me and Janine, her favorite spot, something she called cozy, fluffy bed camp. In her two years with us, she touched so many people, delighted so many nurses, technicians, waiters, and flight attendants, and gave Janine and me the greatest gift of all, a family. We will miss that every moment of life that we have left. Chica told me once when I said I had to go do my job that what I did for a living was not really my job. Your job, she said, is carrying me. She was right. Carrying her to the end of her journey was my job, and today I carried her beautiful little body out of our room and down the hall and finally out the door. We will have a funeral here next week in Michigan, but she will be buried in Haiti where she belongs, where she is from, and where she longed to return. We thank all of you for our prayers and support throughout her journey. We ask for no condolence cards or flowers or things like that. If you wish to do something in her honor, you can make a contribution to her home in Haiti the Have Faith Haiti Mission Orphanage, to take care of the other 39 children like her. The website is Have Faith 
Haiti.org. I have no doubt where Chica is because she had no doubt. One night, Janine walked into the bedroom to find Chica singing alone. No music, no TV. Even Janine's entrance didn't stop her from continuing, by herself, for eight minutes. It was just true, mesmerized devotion, the faith of a child. I got that two years ago. I've kept that, and I always felt, knowing you, that one day this was going to turn into a book. And it's interesting, as you've been percolating on this and marinating on this, and I'm holding an advanced copy of it in my hands, which is just phenomenal. Talk a little bit about the journey putting together Finding Chica. Well, that that email kind of threw me, Brian, kind of shook me up a little bit. But, you know, the journey of the book Finding Chica is the journey of Chica. Chica was born three days before the earthquake in Haiti of 2010. Mm. And on the third day of her life, she was on her mother's chest in bed in a single room cinder block home when the earth shook. And the cinder block house fell down around them. The roof fell off. And miraculously, she and her mother survived because it cracked open like a walnut. Mm. And that night, she slept out in the sugarcane fields in the dirt. She was three days old, a three-day-old baby. And she slept there for many weeks that followed. And so, as I write in the book, she was born tough. And she was born into the soil of her homeland, literally. And... Two years later, her mother died in that same rebuilt cinder block home, giving birth to a baby brother. There were no doctors present, as there weren't any present when she was born, because nobody can afford a doctor there. And so you just give birth at home and pray for the best. And that's what happened, except something went wrong, and the baby was born, but the mother died. And Chica was taken away that day from her siblings by a godmother who brought her to us, at the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage, which is an orphanage that I operate there in Haiti and have for the last 10 years. I'm there every month, and I admit all the kids, and we have 52 children there. And At the time, she was probably number 39, 40, something like that. And she was a pistol from the time she arrived. (laughs) She basically took over. She was the youngest kid there when she first got there, and she took over. She told all the other kids when they could go to the bathroom, when they could get standing in line for a meal, when they could play, you know, you go here, you go there, you go here. And every picture we have of her from that time is like pointing a finger or wagging a finger or yelling or something. <laughs> and then uh, when she was five years old, I got a call from our director one day down there in between my visits. And he said, uh, there's something the matter with Chica. I said, what do you mean? He said, her face is drooping. Her eye and her mouth is drooping. And I said, well, did you take her to our doctor? Yes. Well, what did the doctor say? He gave her eye drops. Oh, wow. Which tells you a little bit about the state of medical care in Haiti. Mm. And I said, Alan, it's not eye drops. This is neurological something. We need to find a neurologist. So we found a neurologist. There was one MRI machine in the whole country of Haiti Mm. at the time. And you have to pay $750 cash and show up at like four in the morning and then just wait. And that's what we did. And eventually they took an MRI of her head. And when it came back, Brian, it was a two-sentence report. And it said, the child has a mass on her brain. Whatever it is, there is no one in Haiti who can help her. Jeez. That was the assessment of the MRI. Good grief. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. You know, we've been dealing there for a while, and obviously there's so many challenges. It's the second poorest nation on the planet Earth, mm-hmm. and the average worker earns $2 a day, and it's over 60% poverty level and 60% illiterate, and so mm. you can't be surprised by anything. Right. So we brought Chica North to Detroit thinking, well, all right, our great American medicine will cure her. And the nice folks here at the University of Michigan were able to help us out, and, and they did an exploratory brain surgery on her, which was scary as it was, but we think, well, okay, they'll, maybe they'll get it out and they'll find out. And when they opened her up, uh, it was pretty complicated, and they weren't able to get all of it out. They sent it out to pathology, and about four days later, Janine and I went in to a consulting room thinking that, all right, well, we're braced for a stage one, which is, you know, non-cancerous or, you know, really not a very dangerous tumor, but if it has to be a stage two, you know, she'll have to get some radiation and then, you know, she'll be here a little longer and then we'll get her back to Haiti. And we sat down in the room and the doctor came in. I could tell by his face something was wrong. And he said, I got some tough news. And what? He said, she has DIPG, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, which became our new four letter word, DIPG. Mm-hmm. And I said, is that a one or a two? And he said, it's a four. Mm. And we learned then in that room that this strikes only a few hundred kids a year, and it is always fatal. And it usually takes children within four or five months. It only hits kids between like four and nine years old, usually, and debilitates them very quickly, robs them of the ability to walk and see and then swallow or talk, and then they just die. And this was all happening in an hour, you know, like we had driven over there thinking, well, you know, we'll just find out she'll be here another couple months. And then, so not only did we find out she had this terminal illness, but like we had to make a decision Mm. about it all of a sudden because we were her guardians, you know? And I said, well, what would you do? You know, that's what you always say to the doctor, what would you do? And he said, well, for me, I would take her back to Haiti and just let her play with her friends. And this will take its course on her very quickly and debilitate her and then just let her go. And he said, you know, you could try to fight it, but most of the stuff doesn't work. He said, I remember this so clearly. He said, it will compromise her quality of life. And when he said that, Brian, you know, normally I listen to doctors. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of respect for doctors. But when he said quality of life, I said, well, wait a minute. She was born into an earthquake. She slept in the dirt. She's never, until she came to us, never had a toilet, never had hot water. She ate one cup of rice a day, and she managed to survive all that. And she's tougher than you think, and she's a fighter. And if she's going to fight, then we owe it to her to fight with her. And I told him right then and there, I looked at Janine, and she nodded, and I said, nope, we're not taking her home. We're going to battle this thing. Tell us what we have to do to battle. And that began... What turned out to be two years, she lived just shy of two years Mm. with this disease, which is almost unheard of. And during that amazing journey where it took us all over America and and even to Germany, where we lived for a while for experimental treatment, during that two-year stretch, she gave us the greatest gift that Mm. anyone can be given. She made us a family. Mm. And this book is a story of becoming a family in your late 50s with a child who doesn't look like you, talk like you, come from you, you know, and yet she could not have been any more of a daughter to us than if she looked 
like a carbon copy of our faces. Wow, spectacular. And the dynamic here, it's fascinating to me. You know, we talking about the earthquake, and it's interesting, like our great friend Scott Hamilton has adopted some kids from Haiti and so on and so forth. What brought you to Haiti in the first place? The earthquake. Yeah. You know, that's why I always say Chica and I were sort of on a path to meet one another, you know, because she was born three days before it, and I heard of her country. It was like she was born, and it sent a signal up here. Right. Reverberated all the way up here. And uh, Here's the thing. I saw that earthquake. Millions of people saw that earthquake. Millions of people watched the coverage. You got on an airplane. What well, happened? What happened was a pastor here in Detroit yeah. who had started this orphanage, he came to my radio program. I do a radio program in Detroit. And he came to it seeking help because he said, you know, I think the orphanage might have been destroyed. I think the kids might have been killed, but there's no phone service because, you know, there were no phone lines. And, you know, everybody's using the cell down there and everything's destroyed. So something about that conversation just stuck with me, Brian. I said, oh, my gosh, you have an orphanage and there's children. You don't know if they're alive or dead. What must that be like? And so I tried to organize a trip for him to go down with a senator, and it fell apart at the last minute. And so I felt like, well, let me put it together. And I managed to find somebody who had a little plane that we rented, and I paid for the trip. And I said, I'll go with you to see what it looks like. And we were granted a 10-minute window to land in Haiti because the military was running all the operations back then. So they gave us 10 minutes. And when we left in Detroit, we had to somehow get there was in between 2 and 2.10. And if we didn't, then we weren't allowed to land. Wow. So uh, we got down there, we hovered around for a while, and then they let us land. And, Brian, when I tell you that when I got out of that plane, it was, first of all, it was very quiet. But the airport, you could see it was had cracks in it. And it just looked like the aftershock of, like, uh, an Armageddon or something. When right. we flew in over it, we saw buildings that were just crumbled and destroyed. And then when we were down at ground level, as we rode to the orphanage, all it was was just mountains of rubble and rubble and rubble where buildings used to stand because everything was built with cinder block without an even rebar in it, you know, nothing to hold it up. So everything just collapsed. And you could see beds sticking out of the rubble and, and, and a table sticking out of the rubble, a mattress. And people were walking around covered in white dust everywhere. You saw everyone was covered in the dust that was still hovering in the air weeks after the earthquake. The smell of dead bodies in some of these things, you could smell it from, you know, half a mile away. And you saw people clawing through rocks, still trying to get at their loved ones wherever you went. Fires were burning. People were getting water from puddles because there was no water. You know, what's your sources? You know, water trucks weren't running. Nothing was functioning. And then we got to the orphanage, and thank God it hadn't been destroyed, but it was overrun. And there were hundreds of people who had jumped the fence and gone in there because they thought they'll bring food to an orphanage. You know, that's where food comes first. So you had all these adults and it was impossible to tell who was who, and it was pandemonium. It was 100 degrees. I was wow. stupidly wearing these black jeans. I remember I was sweating so profusely, just dripping, and, and I was overtaken by the haze and the chaos. And as I'm standing there, I have my arms down at my side, and suddenly I looked down, and I felt these two hands in my hands. And I looked down, and one side was a little girl, one side was a little boy. I don't even know who they were. And they had taken my hand, and they started walking me, like, towards one of the buildings. And I always remember that moment. It's like they were walking me into their world and eventually into Chica's world. And I 
have never stopped going back. I've been there every month since. I brought down a bunch of contractors. You know, here in Detroit, we do things with our hands, you know, so <laughs> it wasn't hard to find. I came back, I told the story, I wrote about it in a paper, and I found roofers, plumbers, contractors, electricians, and they were all, you know, this is 2010. A lot of them were still out of work. Right, the recession. So they said, you know, let's go. And they called themselves the Detroit Muscle Crew. And I got Roger Penske, who, of course, is the, you know, yeah. uh, race car driver and all that. And he was kind enough to let us use his plane. And so we shoved all this stuff in the belly of the plane that we're not supposed to take on a plane, like yeah. paint and tile saws and everything. We had no equipment down there. And we went down, and they ended up taking – those guys came down nine times. And we built the first toilets that this place ever had. Up till then, they were just defecating and urinating in a hole in the ground. They would take a rock. And they would go out at night if they had to use the bathroom at night. They'd take a rock, and, and they'd use the rock to bang on the ground so that the rats would run away. Wow. You don't want a rat biting your rear end while you're doing Jeez. your business. And then when they finished doing what they needed to do, they'd use the rock as toilet paper and wow. wipe themselves with the rock because there's no toilet paper. Wow. So we built the first toilets, the first showers, the first kitchen. Eventually, we built the school. And meanwhile, while we're building all this, the pastor, you know, he, he would— be there once in a while, and I noticed the kids were still starving. They, they weren't eating anything. And I said, I don't get it. We're putting all this time and effort into the orphanage, building it, but the kids are just, you know, they still look really impoverished. And that's when he said to me, well, the truth is I don't have money to run this place. I haven't had money to run it for years. It's been getting by on $500 a month, a month for the whole place. And so in one of those moments, Brian, that sometimes life you know, you don't even know what you're doing. It was like an out-of-body experience. I just said to him, well, you know, I run some charities in Detroit. I'm sure I could handle the operations if you want me to take it over. And he said, praise Jesus, hallelujah. And <laughs> you're in. A couple of weeks later, I was in charge. And I've been running it ever since. Had Janine, did she accompany you at this stage? No. Or? No, this was all stupidly so on my explain own. this, how you went home and said, honey, we now own an orphanage. How did that conversation go? It was a little bit longer than that. But <laughs> it was, listen, um, while I was down there this last time, you know, uh, I think I may have just volunteered myself to take over the operations of this orphanage. And, you know, God bless my wife. Because there have been many times where I've come home and I've said, I just got a movie offer, you know, or, hey, I've decided to write this book series. And she'll get very upset with me and she'll say, where do you have the time to do that? And how about the time you need to spend with us and, and home and all that? And this, she said, I think that's great. You should do it. If you're making a difference, you should do it. We should do it. And there was no hesitation wow. on my part. And, of course, the kids have come to love her and... You know, we don't have any of our kids call us mommy or daddy. I don't believe in that. They all had mommies and daddies. Yeah. But they call us Mr. Mitch or Miss Janine, and Miss Janine is absolutely walks on water down there. You yeah. Know, when she goes down. And I go down every month, and I operate the place. You know, we have a staff of about 40 people now. We have 52 children. I've admitted every one of them, and, you know, I'm the one who has to sadly decide who can come in and who can't. Wow. For every one we take in, there's at least 10 that we have to say no to, and they're all dire circumstances. Everybody's poor, everybody's needy. And Janine comes down about half that amount of time, you know, probably six times a year, and they can't wait when she comes. They just love her. And these kids have become our family. You know, they're the kids that we're raising in this world. We didn't have children of our own. We got married late, and it just didn't happen for us. But God has seen his way to 
make us, you know, we're like Abraham. And yeah, Sarah. right. 52. You got 52 of me. You know, people think I'm nuts because me and Beverly have six, but 52, yeah. that's a handful, bro. Tell me about this, because ultimately, you know, a story like this, like even listening to stuff like this, where people are tapping the ground with a rock to go to the bathroom, whatever else. And we all get caught short, especially in our Western North American lives, where our problems are pretty, pretty spectacular. You know, yeah. you know, they, they say someone in not to diminish suffering, but someone on welfare in the United States is in the top 18 percent of income earners in the world. And yeah. and we say stuff like that. And it's not it's not to belittle anyone else's suffering, but it's. You know, like I say, you're running an orphanage on 500 bucks a month is what they were doing, you know. <laughs> but when you hear that, I think it gives us all a perspective. It's kind of a bit of a wake-up call. It should hopefully help us be grateful for what we have and, and who we are. But a situation like this book, why do you think it'll help so many other people? Well, first of all, the thing I want to say about the book, Finding Tika, is that it's not a sad story. Mm -hmm. And that may sound like, well, how can that be if it's about a little girl who dies? Well, I knew going in that people were scared of that kind of a book. And so right from the very beginning, on the very first page, you find out that she died. And you find out because Tika has come back to visit me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have visits with Tika all the time. She would come down to my office and sit by my feet while I worked in the early mornings. She would play with a doll or crayons or things like that. And now I go down there and, you know, of course, it's empty when I first go down. But I just sort of close my eyes and I imagine, and there she is. And so I wrote the book kind of that way. And mm. it's, a, it's a long discussion with Tika where she comes back and wants to hear her story and wants to hear, you know, well, how did you find me and how did you get to me and what happened? And so it's all about the things that Tika taught us while she was here. And mm. since she lived seven years, I kind of picked seven things that she taught us. Mm. And so hopefully these are lessons. It's not just a story about me and Chica. It's a story about how you make a family, first and foremost. That there are many ways, Brian, that families are made. Right. You know, they don't all have to look the same. They're like pieces of art. You know, art can be made from a piece of pipe and a, and a piece of cloth or a canvas or a paint. And same thing with families. Sometimes they're the natural way. Sometimes they're blended together. Sometimes they come from different countries. Sometimes they come very late in life. Mm. But they're all family units. And she taught us that. And she taught us so many other things along the way about our time, you know, how we were spending our time, how we thought, oh, every minute of our day is so accounted for. We're all so preciously busy. And then all of a sudden, suddenly everything you've been doing has to wait because you have a five-year-old child who is facing an uphill battle with her life and what is more important than that and so it's amazing you just to reorganize your time and you move at her pace which is glacial because you know <laughs> she would eat breakfast for an hour you know she'd look out the window and she'd say there's a squirrel and i would say she can eat yeah but there's a squirrel he said eat okay stick one spoonful and then you know uh, she'd hum to herself and start singing to herself a little bit and then oh mr Mitchell dear you know keep eating come on we gotta you know, right you eventually you have to just sort of get to that pace. And then, of course, we ended up moving to Germany for stretches of time so she could have immunology treatments. I don't know anybody in Germany. We, you know, we were living in Cologne. And so we just hung out together. And she loved being in Germany because she had us all to herself and there was no phones and no work or anything. And she loved it. And she, I would push her in the streets of Cologne in her wheelchair. and She'd be singing out to the crowd. And at one point, you just find yourself saying, you know what? My life is totally flip-flop, and it's fine. Mm. You know, like, I'm so much more content with this. Hmm. And she taught us that, too. And just so many other lessons. She 
taught us about our marriage. You know, I have to say, Brian, I was very selfish when I was younger. I was selfish with my time. And, you know, I, I took seven years before I asked Janine to marry me, which is a long time. You know, I was probably largely responsible for the fact that we didn't have kids because I waited so long in that stupid male lack of commitment thing that we often do when we're younger. And, you know, I used to worry that, well, if you have kids, then where's that going to leave me? You know, Janine's going to be all over the kids, and, and I'll be like that husband who just goes and picks up the trash and takes the kids to the ball game, and, you know, and then and there goes my marriage, you know. Right. And what I found was so opposite that I got to see my wife in such an amazing light, right. you know, and she's been waiting her whole life for this, and she was so loving and so giving, and I appreciated her so much more. And without Chico, I never would have experienced that. Right. So it's my hope that that and other lessons in there resonate with readers and kind of give Chica a legacy. Brilliant stuff. You know, it's counterintuitive and it's the way wisdom works. It's the way life works. You know, people say to me all the time with the six kids and how do you do this and how do you do that? And I go, well, once I realized my life was no longer my own and I gave it away, that's when I got my life back. Yeah. You know, that's the same dynamic. And, you know, you overcame with the spirit to serve and connect and give and look at all you've received, including heartache. Yeah. But all you've received from the day that earthquake happened, you know, 2010, you think of the last nine years of your life, how it's been transformed. And, yep. you know, for years you were chasing the brass ring and famous sports reporter and on TV. And then you become this huge best-selling author and, and on this journey along the way. You know, like your first lesson was Maury because you were saying up until that time you felt like you were a self-centered right. guy. But when you right. did this to give back to Maury and his family and write this book for the expenses. I mean, this Finding Chica, all the proceeds go to the orphanage. Uh, which is just magnificent, but it puts you in this place where now you live in this place of giving it away and giving it away. And my father used to say, give it out in slices, it comes back in lows. And hmm. you're living proof of that, you know? Yeah. Well, your father was a wise man. Well, you know, those Irishmen, they have a great turn of phrase, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I also will say this, you know, like I, I read the email to start off our interview today, and this could be for people, oh my gosh, this is a downer book. I want to say this. I just feel like you're one of the greatest writers of our time. And, oh, thank you, Brian. You know, look, I create a lot of content. I write a lot of stuff. I'm a speaker by nature, and I'm a guy who writes and this and that and the other. You know, God blessed you with a unique way to think and articulate through words. Every one of your books, you know, at the headquarters here, I have a, my assistant, Jeanette, has one half of her office is dedicated to books that I prescribe for people. Mm. And, you know, we get thousands of letters every month, and we have this and that and all these different things. And I prescribe the books. And I have an entire group. I mean, the uh, five people you meet in heaven, <laughs> you know, the next person you meet in heaven, like Tuesdays with Maury. I prescribe these books to people all the time as a way to comfort and encourage them when they've been through different things and so on and so forth. And I just think your ability to connect to the difficult parts of life the challenging parts of life, the way you think, and then articulate that is spectacular. And that's why I knew there was something when you first talked about this that people were obviously trying to comfort you and Janine and talking about what you lost and what you lost. And I remember from the very first day it happened, you were saying, it's not that we lost anything. We got to. We got that's to right. have Chica. We got to have that's her right. for 23 months. We got to have these experiences. I got to walk us through the streets of Cologne. I got to. And that spirit of appreciation and value and flipping it on its head instead of focusing on what you lost and focusing on what you gained. Right. 
is, I believe, probably the most important dynamic for happiness yeah. and well-being. Well, you know, thank you for saying that. You're right on on all of that. And, you know, it was really brought home to me by Chica towards the end of her life when she couldn't walk anymore. You know, of course, there was a lot of sadness with that. I remember one time when she was struggling to walk, there was a little boy she had a crush on all the time she was here. His name was Aiden. And every now and then when they would get together, she would always, Aiden, a nice Irish name. Yeah, right. And his mom's Irish as can be. I mean, yeah, she's from, uh, from County Court. Oh, wow. But every time they get together, she suddenly got quiet. I mean, she was never quiet. And, you know, and I took him to an arcade one time, and we got, like, quarters, and they put him in a paper cup. And if I was with Chica, she would have taken my cup and her cup. <laughs> but we were with Aiden, and so I gave her her cup, and she looked at it, and she said, I think I have too much. And she poured some of hers into Aiden's cup, which I said, now I know she's got a crush on him. You know, little five-year-old. And he was seven, you know, an older man. Yeah. And so we always would try to get them together, and we would tease them and stuff like that. And then one night when she was more than a year into her disease and her walking was diminishing, mm. she watched a movie, and uh, there was a princess. She always loved watching these princess and happy ever after movies. She would clap when they got kissed and everything. And, and she said, do you think I can marry a prince one day? And we said, Chica, you can marry anybody you want. And my wife said, what about Aiden? Would you like to marry him? And she said, Aiden would never marry a girl like me. And we said, why not, Chica? And she said, Aiden would never marry a girl who cannot walk. And we just like, oh, oh. you know, like we didn't see that one coming. That mm. was a brick. And you realize she was aware of herself and mm. aware of her limitations. And yet she wasn't saying it in a depressed way. She was just saying matter of factly, like, oh, I won't get to marry him. And of course, we said, of course, it doesn't matter. And but, but, you know, like we were so we were crying inside. And so things like that would come out of her mouth. And yet when she really couldn't walk anymore and I had to carry her back and forth to the bedroom, to the bathroom, to, you know, outside, everywhere she went, she couldn't move until I carried her. We were at a table once coloring and I looked at my watch and I realized I was late for my radio program. And so I popped up and I said, oh, Chica, sorry, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. She said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. <laughs> I, said, I said, okay, Chica, I get it, but this is my job. And she looked at me, she crossed her arms, mm. she said, no, it's not. Your job is carrying me, mm. like that. And of course, you know, I laughed and then I realized, well, of course she's right. Yeah. My job is carrying her. You know, our job is carrying our children, all of us. Yeah. What we carry defines us. And I write this in the book as the last thing that she taught me, mm. to what we carry. And here, you know, I had for so many years carried my awards, my accomplishments, my money, my job. I carried that around. That was, you know, what was in my arms. And now here I was, what I carried was her. Mm. And that defined me. And I was much happier being defined by carrying her than those other things. And Crazy. she was the one who taught me that. So there's seven powerful lessons in the book. What do you hope, as we finish up here, what do you hope people will take away? What encouragement do you hope folks will take from reading this book? That one, as I said, families can be made in yeah. any kind of way. Two, it's never too late to start a family. Mm -hmm. Three, there are children all over the world, just like Chica, who need help like this. And you don't have to necessarily bring them up and have them live with you, 
but we are a family of man here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at a time in the country where a lot of people are kind of becoming more xenophobic, more like, no, let's just be us and not care about them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a political person. I don't get into any of that. But I know that children aren't political people either. Right. And they didn't choose. Why should Chico or one of other 51 kids, why should they have to worry about are they going to have enough to eat or they can't afford to see a doctor or, you know, a, a mosquito bite could kill them because they happen to be born in that country versus this country. That just doesn't seem fair. Mm-hmm. And so there are kids out there who need this kind of help, and I hope people will recognize that. And the last thing is what you said, and it's towards the end of the book that I say this, we did not lose a child. We were given a child. Mm-hmm. And everybody should be able to look at their children that way. Mm. And whether they get lucky enough to have them and see them grow to be married and have children of their own, or they lose them after a year or two, or like DIPG people between four and nine years old, whatever time we get, it's given. Mm. It's given. It's not loss. And appreciate it that way, and you'll hug your kids a lot tighter. That's awesome. That's great stuff. Is the organization still HaveFaithHaiti.org? Yep, it is, HaveFaithHaiti.org. And you're talking about going on an extensive plan here to help build this brand-new orphanage. Yeah. All the proceeds of the book are going to that. I shared with you, Bev and I, we will be boogieing down there to come see you guys. Good. And we have really darling children, and they're all being educated. They go to school eight hours a day four hours in English, four hours in French. Mm. They can speak three languages, Mm. and every one of them will receive a college education. That's my goal, and that's my promise to them. Two of them are already here in Michigan in college. One's a pre-med student, and he's a 4.0. And this is a kid who had to learn how to do his homework on his lap because there were no desks. He had to have a flashlight because there's no power in Haiti after 9 o'clock at night. It all goes out, so everybody's in the dark unless you have a generator. And he would do his homework on his lap with a pencil. And, you know, you know what a writing looks like when you're writing on your lap on a piece of paper with a pencil? You can barely read it. And yet he managed to get through high school. He aced the TOEFL test because of his English, and he went right in. And I try to keep up with him now. I ask him, can I help you with your classes? He said, well, I have statistics. I don't forget it. <laughs> I can't help you. But, uh, you know, it's amazing that they're surpassing me here education-wise, and that's my goal for all of them. And, uh, you know, I I hope people who want to help us, we welcome the help. Every dollar we get goes right into the cause. We have no administrative fees. I pay all that out of my own pocket, so nobody's getting a salary. Nobody's having an office. No dollar goes to air conditioning or something like that. It's just that. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you're a beautiful man, an incredible writer. It's a great story. It's inspiring. I think it's going to be surprisingly helpful and encouraging to so many folks. Just like Tuesdays with Maury was, only in this way, I think it's an expansion of our awareness and perceptions, gratitude, uh, all of these feelings that came to me going through this. Very excited for the work you're doing. Very excited to get behind you. And very excited that folks can pick up a copy of Finding Chica, wherever great books are sold. That's Finding Chica, C-H-I-K-A. And uh, I think it's going to be a runaway bestseller. And I'm praying it helps build buildings and classrooms and computers. It's great stuff. Well, Mitch, I appreciate you being on the show. God bless you. And uh, best of success to you with the book. And I can't wait to come down and and see what you got going on there. Havefaithhaiti.org. 
finding Chica. Let's get behind this and let's go and uh, find the next Chica and bless that person. Thanks for being with us today, buddy. Until next time. God bless. Thank you, Brian. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mitch Albom. And as I said during the interview, Mitch is one of the greatest writers of our time. And every time you read one of his books, you always come away encouraged, uplifted, and inspired. A profound guy who found out after years and years of chasing the brass ring that when he started giving it away, that's when everything came back and more. So fantastic stuff. Well, I want to finish off the show in our normal way here today. And I'll have my mother say the Irish blessing. She's been carrying me for a long time. So over to you, ma'am. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 